Hi, this is Steve Bose, and welcome to a special edition of the HR Happy Hour Show. In December of 2021, Trish McFarlane and I partnered with Lyra Health and Lara Gossman from Lyra Health to do a webinar on Lyra Health's 2021 Workplace Mental Health Trends Forecast Report, a deep dive into what's happening with employee mental health in the workplace and how employers can best respond to the ongoing mental health challenges of their workforces. The webinar was great. It was informative. It was very conversational, much like this podcast. So we thought we'd run the audio as a podcast on the HR Happy Hour Show in early 2022 to help you and your organizations best meet these mental health challenges. And as always, this episode of the HR Happy Hour is brought to you by Paychex, one of the leading providers of HR, payroll, retirement, and insurance solutions for businesses of all sizes. Financial capital has long been established as a key driver of business performance, but today business leaders are increasingly recognizing the importance of their human capital in driving success. Download Paychex's latest guide to discover why breaking down the silos between HR and finance can result in better business strategy and growth, as well as 14 simple HR metrics your teams should be tracking and why. To download this ebook, visit payx.me slash fdmresearch. All right, thanks again to our friends at Paychex and to our friends at Lyra Health. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the HR Happy Hour Show. Well, thank you to everybody for joining. I'm really excited to dig in today. Um, as mentioned today, we're really going to be digging into the results of our 2022 workforce mental health trends forecast. Um, feels surprising even for me to say that it's been nearly two years since the start of the pandemic. Um, and I think that we can all agree that the way of working has changed. Um, specific to the new normal as it relates to workforce mental health, we're seeing some pretty big changes, both in the ways that companies are addressing the need of their employees, uh, but also the evolving expectations that we're hearing direct from employees, uh, really what they're thinking that their employers you know, should be providing to them. So today we're going to take a look at some of the top trends uh, related to workforce mental health. We're going to start to make some predictions about based on our conversations with employers, what we anticipate going into the next year, um, and many of the trends and predictions that we'll um, be speaking to are results of a new survey that we conducted, including over 1,000 full-time employees and 300 uh, employee benefits leaders across the United States. I think you'll note uh, that Trish, Steve, and I are all incredibly passionate about what we're speaking today. And Really, as we were preparing for this conversation, uh, wanted it to just be that, an active conversation and dialogue. And so I uh, would encourage you throughout the conversation today, if you have questions or anything that you want to add to the conversation, um, you'll see the questions panel on the GoToWebinar uh, screen. So feel free to leverage that. We'll certainly be able to address questions throughout, um, as well as have some time for Q&A at the end of the presentation. Um, and then final piece of housekeeping to note is just uh, if you are looking for a recording of this conversation, that's something that we'll be sharing out as well as the full um, 2022 uh, trends forecast uh, will be sent to you as a report as follow up to this presentation today. So thank you again so much for joining. Uh, would love to start really, you know, Trish and Steve um, on the topic, uh, a quite hot one these days of the great resignation, or some refer to it as the great reshuffle, that's certainly the way that we've been thinking about it. Obviously, top of mind for us um, here was just understanding when it comes to mental health, you know, what are the factors that are attracting and um, important in terms of retaining key talent? You know, the, the few things that jumped out to me personally as we were reviewing our trends report 
um, is that 84% of employers said it was at least somewhat uh, important to them when evaluating a prospective employer that they're offering mental health benefits. And if you look at that same data point from just a year before, uh, it was only 70%, so up quite a bit. Um, furthermore, you know, more than half, so about 54% of employees said that they would consider staying at their current employer because it offers mental health benefits. So a few things that certainly um, jumped out to me, we're seeing you know, that the vast majority of employers are prioritizing mental health, not just as we go into 2022, but they identify it as a key need um, over the next three years. So just curious, maybe Trish, you can start us off today. You know, do you, from your point of view, are these factors, um, are there driving, you know, that are driving employees the same for employers? in terms of prioritizing mental health? Any thoughts you can share today? You know, thank you. That is a great question. And I'm glad you shared some of the stats from the report because I think it really hits home that it's such a different time. You know, we we know that a pandemic is gonna bring a lot of negatives, of course, but I think one of the most positive things to come out of it is for the first time, you're starting to see employers and employees on the same page. Um, when I think back over the 20 years where I was an HR leader, I could probably count on one hand the number of people that truly came to me in human resources and said, I need help, real mental health, right? And whether that was stress from, you know, uh, something at work or personal, whether they were having anxiety, depression, maybe something more serious. Again, people did not feel comfortable identifying that as an issue at work, right? Um, and then over the next decade or so, we started telling people, bring your whole self to work, right? We wanted them to be encouraged, but yet there was still such a hesitancy. So I think that when you're looking at the results that you were just sharing, what we're seeing is that we are now all facing anxiety. We are all facing, you know, whether whether it's your, you know, different races, different ethnicities, different job levels, different industries, right? across the board, we have uh, a lot of concerns that are very similar. So to me, that's such a good foundation that we can start building this conversation from. And while it might be uncomfortable for, for quite a while, and I know we're gonna dig in on that a little bit later, but I think it's at least a good starting point for us. And I know Steve, um, I, I think you've probably seen that too, but but Laura, I. With, with you, I know from a company perspective, you see so many companies um, that are, are trying to gauge that level of mental health needs. What, what kind of things are you seeing from your clients? Trish, that is a great question. Um, and it's a question I've been asking a lot. Obviously, many of our employers are getting ready for any new benefits that they're putting in place for January. And so I often ask, why now? Why are we prioritizing um, mental health now? And so I'll just kind of highlight two key trends that we've been hearing from employers. Um, one is as they're reflecting on both medical and pharmaceutical send, been seeing a steady uptick over the last several years, potentially not surprisingly uh, in the behavioral space, uh, but not a lot of transparency into how do you help people sooner in their journey? Um, how do we provide tools earlier? Um, and so that's oftentimes kind of a, a conversation as they might have the dollar amount or the utilization amount tied to claims, but not much additional insight from there. Um, and, and truly as it relates to are people in care really getting better? And so that's a conversation that oftentimes um, they're, they're looking into, you know, with partners like us. 
I think the other thing, and you hit on this, Trisha, well, is that I hear from employers all the time that the, just the narrative around mental health is changing. Uh, you spoke you know, so cleanly about the fact that several years ago, employees wouldn't stop into a manager's office or an HR leader's right. office and, and vocalize what they need. But I think even outside of the employer space, if we look at the French Open as the example, if we look at the Tokyo Olympics, I think just globally, the narrative around mental health is changing. And so, so is that dialogue in the workplace. And so there's a couple of different ways um, our employers are kind of gauging the needs within their populations. Oftentimes we hear that there are just more phone calls and emails and escalations into the HR and benefits teams. Um, but for our employer partners that are doing regular workplace surveys, they're also kind of reporting that there's quite an IPTEC um, in just what they're hearing in terms of need and expectation um, of the employers to really kind of support in that category. So Steve, I know that you've got a passion for looking kind of at the more macro level um, on impacts to the labor market. And I'm just curious from your perspective, you know, as we think about a stronger well-being at the organizational level, how does that tie back to some of the things that you're seeing? Yeah, thank you, uh, Laura. I, I, I love an opportunity to talk about the labor market. And while we would like to think that uh, an employer's support of their employees' mental health is just, we shouldn't have to have an, a reason to do that. It should just be the thing we do, the right thing to do. Uh, sadly, that's probably not true everywhere. Probably certainly wasn't true prior to the pandemic when I'd argue that mental health in the workplace was an issue prior to the last couple of years, probably a serious, more serious issue than we all wanted to even admit. I think certainly now we're much further down the line, right, of uh, admitting that. I, uh, I was doing a little research for this webinar and for something else I'm, I'm working on. Uh, was kind of looking at the timeline of 2020 and 2021, basically what, what was happening in, in the world and in the news over the last two years. And I'm shocked that not everyone is, you know, experiencing anxiety and stress and burnout. If you just look at, pick, pick one highlight from every month of the last two years and you think, oh my gosh, you know, this has been the most trying two years maybe of all our lives. So uh, having said all that though, every organizational uh, opportunity, decision, decision to invest, et cetera, exists inside a context, which I believe, generally speaking, is the context of our, our workplaces and our labor market. And this, in addition to being the most crazy couple of years in our lives, uh, this is the craziest labor market probably ever as well. And I'll, I'll just throw out a few couple uh, data points that maybe you're familiar with, but it's good to hear them quickly and in a row, right, for that context. In the United States in November, the unemployment rate was 4.2%, right? That is just a few ticks off the all-time low, the pre-pandemic rate was three and a half percent. That was a generational low level. That was a 60-year unemployment uh, low level. In October, there were about 11 million open jobs in the United States. That's about 400,000 short of the all-time high of open jobs in the United States, which was set mm -hmm. just a couple of months prior to that. There are only about 7 million people officially unemployed, which means there's a lot more open jobs than officially yeah. unemployed people to fill those jobs. Uh, and then, Unemployment claims, right? Weekly unemployment claims. When the pandemic first hit and the first wave of, of closures came, there were six and a half million initial unemployment claims. Like, and then the next week there were six million, and the week after that was four and a half million, right? The the first week of December, the last piece of data I had before this webinar, 184,000, 184,000, which is still a lot, sure. That's lower than it was in all the months prior to the pandemic, like a yearly average, right? Finally, last one, and I'll stop on labor market stuff. I know this is a mental health webinar. <laughs> 4.2 million people 
voluntarily quit their jobs in October in the United States, marking the fourth consecutive month of four million people voluntarily leaving their jobs. That is historically high, never been that high. All told, there have been about 32 million quits since March. So what does that all add up to? Probably the most challenging labor market that any HR professional, any leader, any organization's ever experienced, right? We've all seen 50 million stories, right, in the last three months or so about no one wants to work. I can't hire anybody. Places closing down, closing down dining rooms and doing takeout only, et cetera, et cetera, right, or, or, or reducing hours because they can't find people to work. Uh, one of the levers organizations certainly has is uh, improving the way they care about their employees, and certainly one way is, is with mental health uh, benefits programs and, and just being interested and uh, providing employees opportunities to not just improve their mental health, just manage it, right, and, and take care of themselves. You mentioned, Lara, that the, the data shows that many, many more people are considering mental health benefits as they uh, consider uh, new job opportunities or staying at a job, right? Uh, there's Every survey says the same thing. The Lear survey said it. A Calm for Business survey said 76% of employees consider mental health benefits when evaluating new jobs. A new survey from our friends at Paycheck said the same thing. HR and benefits leaders have a tremendous opportunity for more creative differentiation. What most HR, Trish, I'm going to pick on you a little bit, which most HR people like Trish, not like Trish, she wouldn't do this, she'd be more creative, but what HR people do, right, and what business leaders do when they can't find people and they can't retain people, they pull the expected levers, right, raise minimum or starting wage cash sign-on bonuses, maybe offer a little bit more PTO, maybe, I don't know, more perks, right? Put in the pool table, right? All that, all those cliches. Everybody can do those same things and everybody tries them and they're very short-lived, right? They're only short-term things that you can do to try to improve uh, your ability to attract and retain talent. I think uh, emphasizing employee mental health both from a cultural level, which we're going to talk about, as well as a, a practical level with with programs and resources, are is one way, and maybe maybe the best way right now for employers to compete for talent in a really tough market. So that's my speech on the labor market. That's that. If you need justification for making investments in this area, just look at your open jobs and how long it's taking to fill them, and look at the turnover you're seeing in your organization. Right. So that that's that's the labor market context, but. Inside that context, there's another big issue that's happening too, right? We've seen over the last couple of years, and even before I'd argue, which is burnout, right? Employees stress, burnout, overwork, whatever term you want to use to describe it. Uh, in the Lira survey, 32% of employees said they'd experienced burnout in the previous year from a, from a variety of factors. Uh, it seems to be a growing recognition of burnout as a real thing. It's become an identified uh, behavioral condition, right? We, you know, that you can sort of diagnose. Uh, but addressing burnout can be tough. Uh, Laura, you work with a lot of organizations. What are some of the ways that they can try to approach burnout as an issue and maybe address it? Yeah, it's a great question, Steve. We spent a lot of time talking about that. Um, obviously, it's a growing concern, and you spoke to many of the data points around why. I don't think I have to spend much time substantiating that burnout is a challenge that we're seeing, you know, across all of our customers. Uh, but we always encourage people to start small and make incremental changes. Um, those are really the things that can make a lasting impact on that workforce's culture. Um, a big thing, and maybe this is a, an obvious one, but it's such a human human one is 
how do we make work meaningful? Um, and that's something that's a leadership responsibility at the highest levels down to, you know, somebody who has one to two individual reports. How do we tie the, the work and tasks that individuals do on a daily basis into the greater mission? Um, we find that that's a really effective and, and quite frankly, easy way um, to start to make an impact in the work uh, that people are doing. You know, we chat a lot around the role that managers play and people leaders play. Um, we spend a lot of time working with employers around how do we provide learning and education for people leaders. Um, and it's as simple as, you know, in one-on-ones or team meetings, is a manager spending time to really do an audit of the work and responsibilities that an individual has on their plate um, and really helping to model how do we prioritize, how do we delegate? I think that's so important. You had several data points, Steve, around um, just open positions. I think all of us can take a look at our open job boards and understand that it could be really easy um, to push together a couple different roles and responsibilities into one individual uh, in the meantime. But I think just to be really um, kind of ahead of the trend of employees leaving, how do we be thoughtful about role clarity and, and role overload? So that's something that we talk a lot about, just developing people leaders uh, in order to have that conversation. And I think the last thing that I'll kind of just highlight is we talk about the new normal or the next normal, but let's just be really honest that nothing is that normal um, right now. And so how, you know, whether it's HR team, people leaders um, or senior leadership, how do you lead by example? You know, taking breaks. I think many of us, um, we were just chatting about my dog in the other room, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're working at home, we're living at home, we're parenting at home. And so how do we model that well? Um, we talked a lot today around just opening the dialogue around mental health within the workplace. And so um, being a leader that kind of models that where you can, um, leveraging PTO, you know, even if that's an at-home staycation with a Netflix binge, like how do we model these things for our population? I think that's really something important for us to be thinking about as it relates to, you know, just helping to prevent workplace burnout. Um, Trish, though, I'd love to throw it over to you around just from an organizational policy perspective. You know, are there things that you've been thinking about, talking about um, with employers around just kind of lowering that overall risk? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I love that. I just want to say I love that you were talking about an audit because we're, we're doing this as a conversation, right? We didn't plan this out, but one of the things that I loved when I was in human resources was being able to have really concrete things I could take back to my organization and try. So definitely having those audits of the, the workload, what is necessary, what isn't, having the discussions, as you mentioned, modeling the behavior, those are all super, super good examples. I think from a policy perspective, you should approach it the same way. I would do an audit of your policies. This is something that HR professionals do often at the end of a year or beginning of a calendar year anyway, or you should. Um, but I think that when you look at a, a policy uh, you know, handbook or, or online, however you keep those nowadays, it's, it's something that's usually additive, right? We constantly are telling people what not to do, right? Don't wear this, don't wear that, don't do this, don't do that, right? I would challenge everyone who's, who's listening today or who might be listening on replay to really do an audit of your policies and with the specific lens of, does this policy help my leaders or my employees have the flexibility to not be burnt out? If it's something that hinders their ability to get work done in a timely manner or to focus somewhere that they really 
shouldn't be focused on, which is maybe away from mental health and having an awareness there, I would challenge you first, start there. Review some of those policies, rewrite them, get some of the old ones out. Second step is then start thinking about what policies that are uh, very positive can you put into play? And I know, Steve, I'm going to throw it to you on culture because you're such a culture guy. But before you get into the culture of an organization changing, put some, some measurable policies that are in play so that people see if I change these behaviors, if I, if I take that staycation and publicly share that with my team, right, that, that I'm not going to be penalized for that. Because again, policies tend to be more about penalizing employees. So I'd say flip the script. Think about that. Um, the next thing I just wanted to say to you before we really dig into the culture side of it is uh, you all and, and Laura, I know you know this, is at, at Lira Health, you had the uh, report, uh, how managers can prevent employee burnout. So acknowledging emotions was big in that report. Um, and then having connection, meaningful connection that you take time to cultivate were, were two of the things, just two, but there are a ton more in there. So I would say, you know, from a practical, pers practical perspective, make sure you've got a little checklist for yourself. If you're in HR, maybe you're a business leader of, I'm gonna review the policies, I'm gonna put in a few that are gonna be very proactive, and then I'm gonna look at some substantial ways that we can make contributions to connection in the coming year. But Steve, I mean, what about for you? I mean, obviously culture is not, you know, out of this discussion, right? Yeah. and, and I I love and hate talking about culture because one, it, it, it's a, I know it's important, but I also know it's very difficult to define. It's very difficult to describe. It's very difficult to, uh, it's very difficult to manage. And I, I don't think on its own, it actually is all that meaningful because what culture really is to me is it's, it's just a summation, right? A collection of physical, tangible, actionable, real things that we can understand and we can measure and we can experience, right? So I like to think more about things like, well, how do people communicate at work? What 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 are the mechanisms? What are the expectations? How are our projects and tasks, the actual work? How is it managed? How is it assigned? How is it reviewed? How is it measured? Um, what behaviors are rewarded or encouraged, and which ones are discouraged, or perhaps even subject to some kind of you know disciplinary uh, activity? And and then even things like uh, every organization right in the world probably now is talking about uh, uh, making a commitment to improve diversity, equity, inclusion. Okay, great. You can, make, you can make that statement, but what are you actually doing? What are we actually doing to improve those things? And how are we actually holding ourselves accountable as an organization to make those kinds of improvements? That to me is what we're really talking about and other things too, but when we talk about culture. Before work from home and distributed work was a thing, like a big thing, right? Before the pandemic, I was, I, I used to make, tell the story about you could tell everything you wanted to know about an organization's culture by going to your IT folks and examining email traffic from 6 p.m. on Friday to whatever, midnight on Sunday, something like that, whatever you call the weekend, right? Examine email traffic, who sent the volume of emails, who's sending them, who's replying to them, how quickly are they replying to them, et cetera, et cetera. Now you'd have to expand that to include things like texting and Slack and Teams and all the other 10,000 ways we have to communicate with each other at work. And then you could understand what that culture of that organization was really like, at least from a perspective of kind of how we can, how we think about work versus how we think about not work. Burnout is a very serious thing, right? And, and I'm surprised even the percentage that have reported they're experiencing signs of burnout 
was not even higher, right? I, I, I'll bet if we ask again in three months, right, as, as, as year three, the pandemic kind of starts, that those numbers won't go higher. So certainly things like workload, right? Lara, you mentioned this, right? With so many open jobs, organizations are trying to do more with less. They're, they're trying to still serve their customers, often with fewer people, people working longer hours. People are working like crazy, right? The people who are working right now because there's so many open jobs to fill and there's so much pent up demand in a lot of areas of the economy. Autonomy or lack of control contributes to burnout, certainly, right? Not only do I have some, some agency over what I'm doing, but how I'm doing it, perhaps even where I'm doing it. Do I have control to make decisions? Do I have influence over the things that impact my, my working life, or do I not? Or am I just someone who's got to kind of just take orders and listen, and if I fall a little bit uh, out of line there, that's going to be a problem. That can contribute over a sustained period of time to, to burning out. Am I being rewarded? Am I being treated fairly, right, in my mind, right, for all this work that I'm doing, right, do I feel like I'm being valued by my organization, both by my managers and my peers, right, do I feel like I'm contributing uh, both meaningfully and, and, and in a way that I can understand and does it resonate with me? I mentioned earlier, right, and the response to a tight labor market is often just raise wages, improve benefits, right, give sign-on bonuses. You probably still have to do those things, certainly, but again, I don't think that's enough, right? Because you, you hit a point where you can probably, most organizations, right? You don't have an unlimited salary budget or, or bonus budget. They, there comes a point where some other employer out there can do a little better than you. And we see these stories all the time, especially on the small business uh, market, right? Where uh, a big, big multinational company has a lot more power over those kinds of decisions than, than smaller organizations do. So what can organizations do to, to, to compete a little bit more fairly? And the last thing I'll mention too, and this has been challenging, I think, in, in the work from home extended era, especially for organizations who've been either able to do that or been forced to do that, is connection and community and relationships, right? We've seen a lot of stories about how when you see CEO XYZ come on, on, on the business news and say, ah, we really need everybody back in the office, right? Because that's how people get to know each other. They get to collaborate with each other. They learn about the, our culture, quote unquote, together, et cetera. And I always kind of like, I don't know. I, I, I think that just sounds like some boss who wants people there where they can see them. And I think there's some element to that. But I also think there's a little bit of element of truth to that as well. I think now a couple of years into this, uh, I think relationships at work, I think, just think they're, they've bound to have suffered somewhat, right? It, 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 it has been more difficult to maintain those kinds of quality relationships, even friendships, right? The data over the years has clearly shown if you have a quote unquote best friend at work, you're going to be much more engaged in your work. You're going to be more happier with your work. You're going to be much more likely to, to stay with the organization longer term. Creating those kinds of friendships, especially for people who newly been introduced to organizations, right, in this extended work from home era, uh, I think that's really, really challenging as well. So to me, for organizations and for HR people specifically, burnout and the, and the sources of burnout are all over. And I think the, 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 the pandemic for both uh, internal to workplaces and then the external, what's happening in people's lives, have exacerbated those problems to the point where if you're not really looking to address this in an organization, I think, I think you're gonna you're gonna really run into a problem with with, with attracting and then certainly retaining talent in 2022. Yeah, Steve, you know, I gosh, you said so much that I think I just I'm nodding and nodding. Right, it resonates. Um, I think it's you're talking about return to to work into the workplace. One of the things. I heard not too long ago as someone referred to it as you're returning to employees. 
So we often want to return to work if you do have that relationship at work, right? If you do have a best friend at work, um, people that you miss, people that you want to be in connection with, right? So part of it is definitely returning to the work you do. It has to be interesting and challenging and stimulating and all those things. You have to feel valued. You do have to have those relationships. So I just I think it's interesting that we're kind of even in this last 18 to 24 months, moving a little bit off of this return to the new normal, right? Or return to work or even workplace. There's now nothing normal about, about this. I, I know, I know not, we have that no. in the title of our webinar, but. I know, I know. Watch it's the not, news, there's, but, no, there's nothing normal of what's going on anywhere. But, but isn't, it's kind of refreshing now to be able to shed that, I think, and be thinking about the human aspect of it. And I think that was the point of us having this conversation today was what we're missing when we were at work before with people we might've it liked, enjoyed, were challenged by whatever, we were missing some of that, that comfort in being able to share fully who we are, even though we were giving lip service to it, right? Bring your whole self to work, be sharing who you are and what your needs are, right? We still weren't there. I think that's the flip, right? I think we're starting to see, I, I've pulled up some information actually from the, the Lyra Health Report um, it said currently 56% of people would feel uncomfortable speaking about their mental health to a non-HR leader in their company. That's still a really high number. However, I think it's that's much lower than what we would have seen even two years ago, though, because we are seeing that shift of empathy, care, concern, realism from our leaders. So I do feel like it's starting to move. Um, Laura, I, I know that, you know, we've, we've known for years that companies are, are sort of working on any mental health stigmas that happen. Um, but we've always, even myself, been guilty of kind of focusing on things that are easier to address, right? Anxiety, depression, and not that those are, I don't imply that they're easy, but things that are easier to talk about and more acceptable to talk about. Um, with more people actually being away longer or being isolated longer and having more acute and complex mental health challenges, um, such as severe depression, PTSD, right? As people are coming back out into the world, I, I've just recently ran into someone who was actually having quite a bit of that. Um, even substance abuse, right? Kind of joked early on, people were drinking a lot of wine, having more drinks at home. It, it's now far enough and it's created a problem. So my question for you would be, what are you seeing some of the employers doing today to handle maybe the more complex issues versus what we were maybe having visibility into before? Yeah, it's a, it's a great uh, question, Trish. It's certainly been a topic we've been chatting a ton with employers about, um, and you touched on all of the different data points around why, but you know, as we look across the clients that we serve, um, our clinicians identify that over 5%, so 5.2% of all members have more serious mental health conditions. Um, and not to say that as you talk to, you know, obviously more um, severe depression, suicidal ideation, substance use um, and alcohol use disorders, eating disorders um, certainly have always been a, a piece of the spectrum. Um, but I think just with the continued dialogue um, and all the compounding factors that we just spoke to of the very not normal normal that we're in, I don't think employers can afford at this point to not prioritize a strategy in that case. You know, a few 
data points that I'll just highlight um, that we talk a lot about when it comes to, I, I often position this with employers about the moments that matter most. And I think that's across the entire mental health continuum. But very specifically, when you look at individuals with the most acute needs, um, navigating the existing system is just really difficult. You know, less than 1% of beds at most facilities are available at any point in time. Um, so again, we just spoke to that need, you know, 5% of folks in, in care, but less than 1% of bed availability. Um, not all facilities are practicing evidence-based care. Um, so I think the, the most recent numbers that come from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration is that only 58% of residential facilities are offering cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, 31%, only 31% are offering dialectical behavioral therapy. These are really the gold standards for evidence-based cares. Um, and there's also a ton of just variability in price um, for these different facilities. And so again, as you kind of just highlight why now um, are employers thinking about this? Again, I just I think we have to be thinking about supporting those individuals who have the most dire needs. Um, and then the other challenges that wrap around, we talked a lot today about the human component, um, the individual's family and community and support network. So it's not uncommon that um, if a family member is admitted into a residential facility that there's little to no psychoeducation for the family and community member. Well, think about that family and community member being an employee of you who has day-to-day -day responsibilities at work. How could you expect yeah. that individual to show up and be present? And so, you know, I think as we partner with employers, um, we would be remiss to not talk about acute, more complex care needs and to offer options for navigating. Um, unfortunately, oftentimes in my experience, these are the calls that come into the HR team for either an employee in crisis, a manager who's identified someone in crisis, or a family member that's in crisis. And so we really you know, endeavor to be an extension of our teams in finding high quality care, you know, helping that individual get into care. And then I think really that psychoeducation for the family and community. And we, we talked about that in a couple different levels today around you know, certainly the narrative is shifting, um, but you spoke to the data point, only about half of people are really even comfortable yet speaking right. to more minor um, mental health complex issues. And so how do we empower people leaders, empower managers, provide education um, that's not at the individual level, but really is across the entire organization. And I think um, it really just starts with a commitment um, from the executive leadership team, the HR team, uh, to addressing those hard conversations so that there's a level of comfort, you know, when those more complex needs do show up. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. I, I was thinking too, I was making some notes as you were talking. Um, I hadn't really spent a lot of time considering when you talked about it might not be the employee, it might be their loved one who is needing help and maybe getting it or not getting it. And they don't know how to deal with that. So Again, I'm just thinking back in my career, I can't think of a time someone has come to me and said, my spouse, child, someone is struggling mm -hmm. and I need help, right? So gosh, we should be thinking of that aspect too. Um, one of the things that popped to mind as we were kind of planning talking today was I thought about, I have uh, twins that are seniors in high school and you know, a lot of schools have sort of, if you see something, say something, right? You can report anonymously. I haven't really worked in workplaces either where there's a lot of that going on around mental health. So I'd just be interested in either one of you, kind of your perspective maybe on that. Like, do you think that that would be a valuable way that people could start to 
to have those conversations maybe because if you don't know how to fix something, maybe if you at least bring it to human resources or bring it to your boss that you're concerned for your colleague, yeah. maybe you're uncomfortable talking to them directly because you don't feel equipped. Yeah. Uh, have either of you maybe thought through that at all or had that happen with you know people you're dealing with? I'm happy to jump in briefly, Trish, and certainly pass it on to Steve, but one of the most popular things we do with our partners is um, psychoeducation that we refer to as known response. You know, how do you recognize signs and symptoms that somebody on your team is potentially struggling with a mental health? How do you even approach that conversation with empathy to open the door? And I think just the intentionality um, that our employer partners really have put in place to start that dialogue, to make um, and equip individuals with the tools to start that conversation has been so meaningful. So I think, you know, it, it can start in a lot of different ways, whether it's circulating, um, you know, resources frequently around just educating people to those signs and symptoms, destigmatizing mental health. I know that's certainly a topic we've spoken on today um, and creating kind of that open door um, so that, like you said, if, if somebody is recognizing something, maybe that no one else in the organization can see, um, how do we create a path um, for someone to access care or resources when they need the most? Yeah, I, yeah. I think that's a great point. I think there's really, it's making me think about sort of two things here, which is kind of, they're, they're related, right? And I think the, the Lyra study draws attention to these issues to help organizations better manage these challenges. One is education, as you're talking about, Laura, helping people sort of understand the signs. And, and then Trish, you're talking about giving them this mechanism of what to do, right? What, how to take action right. when they recognize these signs, right? Because, right. you know, we've probably all in different workplaces in our lives maybe suspected things like this when we're working with colleagues or, or, or peers or, or, or as managers mm -hmm. with people, if you're seeing people who are all of a sudden starting to behave a little bit differently or their, their mood is changing wildly or their performance even is just varying, right, from a, whatever standard they had set before. And certainly tangible things like, irritability and calling out and maybe you know forgetting to shave or oh, I do that a lot too but forgetting <laughs> to, forgetting in the normal world forgetting to shave for three weeks and and being out sick et cetera et cetera or just just a you know in our personal lives we probably are more prone to see this with people that we know better maybe less so at work right where we we feel like we know people but maybe not as well but you know you, when you look at someone say boy something's just Something's troubling them, I can tell, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, what, what can we do and what resources do we have? And I think part of this uh, conversation that organizations need to have is, is, is with that, honestly, so much pressure and, and challenge and, and stress gets put on a, that, that first line manager level, but it's really true, right? That first line manager has a lot of influence over an employee's experience in the organization, good or bad, right? We've heard that phrase for a hundred years, right? People don't quit companies, they leave managers, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know if that's really true or not, but I think there's enough truth to it to really stress the important role of managers and maybe you know, being more deliberate and intentional about how we provide those resources that you guys have mentioned to mm -hmm. that frontline manager team and maybe really even doing it you know, once per, once per every six months or so, do a very intentional, hey, managerial team, this is something we want you to learn about. And not just to, to spot the signals or the signs that something might be amiss with someone, but also to make sure they really understand whatever set of resources that um, 
that are available to them, either through their health plans, through a dedicated mental health benefit, through an EAP, whatever the organization's giving. Make sure managers understand that, how to communicate that, how to help employees navigate it, right? Because it can be tricky, as, as you mentioned. Yeah. Well, it's tricky, too, because I think there's such a stigma that goes along with sort of self-disclosure or trying to identify someone else if you don't feel equipped. I mean, Laura, I, I would throw it to you. Obviously, you all are doing the research on this. I mean, what about, I mean, again, I'm, I'm a Gen Xer. I've been in the workforce a long time. Even, I, and, you know, and Steve and I, Steve and I are business partners. I think this is the first year I've ever told him truly, like, I'm having a day where I can't today. I just, you know, like, I feel like it's the first time feeling safe enough to even have that conversation with someone I've known for years. What about people in the workplace who might not feel that? They have such a stigma of there being repercussions yeah. for this. And I think, you know, as it relates to stigma, I like to always um, bring the conversation back to the comfort that most people have checking in on, on physical health. So for example, I just recovered for a cold, mm -hmm. That was pretty obvious to my team as I was coughing and coughing less and, and folks were checking in. Um, but that's the language that we've learned, right? The ability of when to check in with folks. And I think um, when it comes to destigmatizing around the population of how do we check in with mental health, it really comes back to me around how do we create mental health literacy, education, provide resources, the same way that all of our other learning and development tracks exist um, for individuals within your population so that we can create that same language and comfort um, in, in really addressing those topics. And so, you know, I like to parallel it to a cold or another physical health condition because I think for people, it's really easy to wrap our head around, oh, Steve was sick last week. Of course, I'm gonna check in and see how he's yeah. doing. But Steve was late for several meetings and Steve hasn't shaved in weeks and now I'm concerned. What is, the, yeah. what is the language? What is the way that I check in? And so I think it really does come back to, in my opinion, really having it be a top priority of teams to create education um, and to help provide that language because we don't have it. We don't have it today. It's not something that many of us grew up in schools learning to check in on. Um, you know, and so I think really um, just kind of flexing the, the team to, to stretch in that way, to consider it a top priority is, is something that I think is just so important. I don't know, Steve, yeah. if there's anything to add from your yeah, perspective. I think I'd agree, certainly. And I think I think it's like a lot of other things in, in, in workplaces or even just society in general. The more we talk about it, the less strange it becomes and the the, the, the and over time, the less stigmatized it, it largely will become as well. Um, and, and I think that emphasizing organizationally that mental health challenges, behavior health challenges are not really any different, right, than physical challenges like your cold, like uh, carpal tunnel syndrome or workplace, uh, you know, injury, right, of some kind, right, where someone's got to mm -hmm. go out for a while and maybe get some rehab and, and or maybe need some sort of accommodation really to come back to work. We, we don't worry, we don't think anything differently about that really or that that person. We don't feel like that person has somehow got some sort of moral or character flaw, right? Because they hurt right. their elbow, right? Working at the line. But yet someone who was reporting maybe some serious issues around anxiety or depression, I think I think a lot of organizations and, and just people still are thinking, well, what's, something's not really, I'm not, I don't really want to work with that person anymore. Somehow they're not qualified or capable, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that contributes to the stigma as well. 
One thing I'll add as well, and I've seen some really good examples of this over the last couple of years, you know, whether it's on a company blog post or on LinkedIn or, 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 other, or other sources, I think it can really help like lots of other things that happen in organizations when organizational leadership really is uh, intentional and, and, and uh, addresses this issue in a, in, even in a public way, even in a personal way. Like I think it would go a long way, right? Look, if you're a manager, if you're a leader, even if you're a CEO or a C-suite person, you don't somehow get some anti-stress or anxiety cloak, right, that gets granted to you, right? You're, you're living through this pandemic as well. Your kids are having to homeschool as well. Your, your elderly parents you haven't seen in two years as well, right? You're, you're just like everybody else. And if more organizational leaders just be open to that and admit it and talk about it and even discuss, even if they've had some challenges themselves, to talk about addressing them and how they sought, you know, for some help. That would go so far to normalizing the conversation and reducing stigma around just have, just facing this and addressing it and saying, as an organization, this is important to us because, you know, we're all people. We're kind of uh, all going through this, these same kinds of things together. I think that's a very, very big one. Yeah, I think that too. It's important to know that if you're a leader. A lot of us were not raised to be open about these things. Uh, it is about sort of handling it on your own, whatever it is, right? And now we're the ones in these leadership roles. So we're all focusing on the employees, but we've got to also focus on not just giving leaders tools to help their team, but how do you help yourself? Maybe, I mean, I don't know. I mean, just off the top of my head, maybe it's having an accountability partner at your same level or some other executive that's going to check in on you because if you're the one who's having to do all these things, but you're the one struggling, it, it's just really difficult. These are just truly unprecedented times, you know? And I think too, we, I was, I was thinking through like a lot of what happens in the workplace, you know, if it doesn't get measured, people don't do it, right? If it doesn't get rewarded, people don't do it, right? You have to see that it's important. Um, and, and Steve and I have had conversations about, you know, we measure a lot of the same things, you know, productivity and utilization and uh, turnover and kind of the traditional metrics. And that's certainly engagement. That's all part of it. But I think, Laura, maybe you could go into this a little bit too when it comes to mental health education and, and literacy. To me, it comes down to are people who get this literacy and get the help actually better? Yeah. I mean, are you, are you seeing that from clients at all? Like, they're, they're putting some of these practices, you know, into their organizational processes. Are their people actually getting better? Yeah, it's a good question, Trish. It's something certainly we're measuring. You know what, I can share anecdotally and, and certainly um, have some data points that we can provide as follow-up is just that, you know, as we look at our employer partners that lean more heavily into promoting mental health care literacy, um, we see more people who are entering their career journey um, kind of at lower severity. So they're building skills early um, and frequently because before those more acute needs um, present themselves. We're seeing more um, individualized participation in self-guided activities. Um, and then as we look across outcomes, that's certainly key to what we do here as an organization, you know, not to make one more parallel to, to physical health, but you know, we talk a lot around if I'm meeting with a, a physical trainer, you know, obviously the work I do in session is important, but the work I do outside of session is so important to my improvement. If I'm not 
eating well, exercising, you know, I'm not going to see that improvement at nearly the same pace. And so where we create those cultures, where we really see employers lean in to education and, and really just resources for employees, we see clinical improvement um, really just at a faster rate for employees, which of course is, is the goal. What you just said sparked something for me when you were talking about, um, you know, if you go to a physical trainer, so maybe I've lost weight or I'm just, you know, getting more muscular, whatever. Why is it that we're willing to put that up? People will Instagram that. They'll put that on Facebook. Here's my before. Here's my after. I don't know that there's an answer yet to this. Maybe there is. Maybe one of you has an idea. But what about with our mental health and what we're doing? Why aren't we out there sharing? You know what? I did try this book, this class, this whatever, this therapist, right? We need, we need to like normalize that too, that sharing and celebration around being successful or, you know what? I didn't shave my beard for a month, Steve Bowes, but today I did, right? And I did it because I'm feeling better about myself. I invested in my mental health over the weekend maybe. And I don't know, is that, or is that too much to ask from, well, you know what? All of I, I made a joke about that, but it also, I think, underscores why this is a really challenging um, topic for lots of people. I made the joke about, like, you can you can Google, right, what are signs someone's struggling with their mental health? And one of them, probably I mentioned it, is, oh, they're, they start being concerned about their appearance and hygiene and things like that. Yeah. And I just don't like shaving, right? And in this extended work from home deal, like, I just haven't had right. to all that often. So, but, and I'm not really meaning to be that flippant about it, but it can be difficult. So you might look at me and say, what's going on with Steve? Like, it doesn't look like he shaved in three weeks. And there was really nothing going on with me. I just didn't shave in three weeks. So I think that's why these things are challenging. And we need to encourage uh, people and organizations, colleagues, peers, managers, especially, to really to, to do those frequent check-ins, do those... Do, almost like wellness checks, if you will, right? It's like, it's it's funny, you know, we talked mm -hmm. about the difference in the destigmatization of mental or behavioral health issues compared to physical health issues, right? Most of us, right? Most of us will see nothing wrong with doing that annual um, physical check-in, right? You, you go do that annual physical with your doctor, do the, 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 the twice a year dental thing, or once a year, however long you do it, no big deal about that at all. But very rarely, if ever, do we really think, Oh, I want to really check in on my mental well-being. I want to do this as a person. I really need to. And, and so I think it hap it, it's more incumbent on those of us around those people. And, and, and again, it often falls into the organization to, to really do that, to be intentional about really understanding, looking for these signs, checking in, showing that empathy, showing that you care. And then finally, you know, creating those environments where it's okay to have the conversations. And then certainly, hopefully, more organizations really being intentional about support and resources and, and dedicated mental health benefit programs to to support people. Uh, it, and it was it was important before the pandemic, to be totally honest with everyone, in my opinion, it's, it's gotten nothing but more important. And yeah. I, I think, Trish, your question on on those success stories um, from from where I sit, I think we're in changing times. Um, I get the great benefit of reading those personal stories on a daily basis. Um, whether they come inbound to our partners or we collect them on our side. And I think, um, like all things, really just those small steps um, in helping to create an environment uh, for employees where they feel comfortable celebrating those successes, like a professional success, like a more, you know, traditionally personal physical yeah. success. 
Um, I believe, because uh, because I'm here and we're doing the work that that we're certainly seeing a change in that narrative. And so um, I'm I'm hopeful it's only kind of an in an increase um, that people feel that comfort in, in sharing their own personal success. Yeah, I, I think you're right. You're both right. I I don't know. I, I can guarantee when I was working in human resources, I wasn't thinking about all of these components. It was about we're, we're getting people with more steps, maybe. Are you getting your steps in? Let's reward that, right? So now we just need to flip the script and say, okay, how do we get them to have more mental health steps, right? And then how do we reward that? I, I'll tell you what, we've talked for years and years about, you know, human resource professionals, especially feeling like they don't have strategic work that they can really dig in on. To me, this is one of the biggest topics. You can be so strategic in helping not just your organization, but every single employee for their life beyond work, right? This is, if you want to make an impact as a leader, This is, I, I feel like this is the topic. Couldn't agree more. Well, yeah. Trish, Steve, I know we've just got a, a few more minutes in the hour, and I think that's the perfect invitation for anybody who might have a conversation um, for the two of you or myself, would just love to encourage anybody to use the questions panel um, within GoToWebinar, um, certainly have some time to address some of those. Uh, I see one came in, it says, uh, let's see here, what are some of the practical things that can be implemented through a benefit strategy that can provide mental health support beyond an EAP and Teladoc connections? That's a great question. Great question. Laura, do you want to maybe talk about some of the solutions you're seeing? Yeah, absolutely. So I know we spoke a little bit today to specifically having a dedicated mental health literacy and education program within the organization. I think that's one really tactical way. Um, we also spoke today around the role that managers play. And so, you know, tie this back to education. But we have, I'm sure you have many first-time leaders and long-time leaders. Trish, you spoke to just how the narrative has changed for leaders who maybe have been leading teams for a really long time. So I think, you know, a couple really meaningful things that you can do is have that psychoeducation be available for the broader workforce and then more tailored and specific training um, that's available at the at the mental um, health uh, leadership level. Yeah, I agree. I like that he was asking about strategy too, though, because um, to me, when I was doing it, benefit strategy was something I, as a younger worker dreaded when I actually got to do it, that became the most exciting part of my job um, because it's such an impactful part of your job in human resources. Um, I think it goes back to Steve, you mentioned early, early on in the conversation about um, just that bringing awareness to every single thing that you offer from a benefits perspective that yeah. like I, people didn't know really what an EAP could do back then. Right. So it's in, in that same mindset, I would say just just really almost over communicate and also communicate in every medium possible. Right. Mm -hmm. Whether that's social media to reach some email to reach others, calls, town hall. Right. Hit it all. Yeah. So we see pretty consistently uh, two things in, in most surveys around benefits in general. And I probably put mental health benefits into the same mm -hmm. bucket. The. Um, uh, difficulty in navigating through the, the things that are offered to employees. I just, I just, you know, I find it hard to figure it out or 
uh, lack of awareness. I, I just wasn't aware that these things were available to me. Right. Two things. If you All the time. Survey data, people who fall into one of those two categories can be as many as 40, 50% of all employees. Either they can't do it, it's too hard, or they just don't, they're just not aware. And so that's a really big opportunity here and a challenge, I think, for HR and benefits leaders to, you know, to, to reinforce that communication. Yeah, agreed. Absolutely. Well, I know we are close to the end of the hour, um, and I just want to say a personal thank you, Trish and Steve. I so enjoyed our conversation today. Um, I know we spoke to many of the data points that are highlighted in our 2022 workforce mental health trends forecast. Again, that's feedback that we've collected directly from full-time employees and employers alike, and I think highlights many of not only kind of the insights and, and predictions that we have um, as we look into 2022, um, but also really actionable steps um, to tie back to how do you apply these things to your personal strategy. So look out for that full report in your inbox soon. Um, and thank you so much for, for joining us today. I really enjoyed uh, the conversation with you.